Well, hello. My name is Dave Hahn. Thanks for joining us on this Good Friday. As we offer our hearts, souls, and minds in worship through hearing, studying, and submitting ourselves to God's holy word. This is without question the strangest Good Friday that I've experienced. Every year for the last 22 years of my life and during other sporadic periods of my life, Worship was a huge part of my observation of Good Friday, considering and reflecting on what many rightly call the darkest moment in human history, where Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, offered his life for you and me on a brutal cross so that we would be fully, freely, and forever forgiven and be made right in the sight of God. I have often thought that even the hardest of hearts and most belligerent toward God must in some small way feel the weight of a Good Friday service. The turned down lights, the somber music, and of course, the awful details of the last hours of Jesus' life on earth. False accusations, betrayals, horrible abuses, lying, deceit wickedness, whips, thorns, nails, and spears. And then, in some traditions, leaving in absolute silence. I think something within all of us know the story of Jesus' crucifixion is true. Certainly, history tells us that it is, but it's more than that, isn't it? When we hear this story, our hearts and our spirits cry out, surely this happened. I think that's why we are so moved by stories of personal sacrifice and of giving one's life for another. Because both are exemplified in the cross. And God has wired us to recognize the incredible beauty and love in acts of great sacrifice. Even in the midst of their tragedy. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So if we believe, even in the smallest of ways, that things happened the way the Bible and history says they did, there are two critical questions we need to ask and consider. So what? And now what? Because after we answer the what question of Good Friday, it is those questions that matter most. And it is how we answer those two questions at a heart and a soul level that make us a child of God or an enemy of God. It's the difference between striving for God's approval or resting in it. And it is how we answer those questions that make the difference between an eternity in heaven or hell. So we'll get to those last two questions but let's first take a look at the first question that we should ask. What? What happened on the day we call Good Friday 2,000 years ago? So please open your Bibles or your Bible apps to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is unique in that it's a psalm written by King David and it is quoted directly by Jesus 490 years later. Like many other psalms, Psalm 22 moves between 
The souls cry to God from a place of suffering and agony and desperation, to confessions and a recognition of who God is, what he has done, and hope for what he will do. One of the most incredible things about the whole of Scripture is how the words, events, and deeds of others find their greatest and fullest reality in the person of Christ. You see, the Old Testament is not a book for Jews and the New Testament a book for Christians. No, it's one story with one main character foretold and appearing in the shadows of the Old Testament and appearing in the flesh and then in glory throughout the New. The book of Hebrews puts a spotlight on this very idea. Chapter after chapter, the writer of Hebrews shows his readers how Jesus is a true and better version of all those who came before him. Likewise, after his resurrection, Jesus appeared to two disciples, and according to Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Psalm 22 is assuredly a psalm of David, and he experienced and felt all of those things, but his words find their true home in the person of Jesus Christ on the very first Good Friday. Beginning in verse 1, Psalm 22 reads, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So in 1977... I first saw parts of a four-part miniseries called Jesus of Nazareth. They used to show it every year at Easter on primetime television, believe it or not. It was four nights in a row, two hours a night. 
And on the last of the four nights, I remember things getting loud in our TV room while my parents watched. Underneath the commotion was a bed of incredibly dark and brooding orchestral music. And it all so captured my attention that I picked up my head to see what was going on. And as I looked on the screen, I saw Jesus being dragged through the streets of Jerusalem. A deep red robe draped across him, thorns upon his head with a crossbar on his shoulders. And everyone who surrounded him was either yelling at him or crying for him. I knew it was Jesus because I'd seen lots of paintings and stained glass depictions of him in church. And then I watched as the soldiers threw Jesus to the ground, tore off his garments, removed the crown of thorns, and proceeded to drive huge nails into his hands and feet. He cried out in agony with each blow of the hammer and finally was lifted up onto the scaffolding in between two other men, beaten, bloodied, and writhing in pain. Now the artistic depictions that I had seen to that point did not look like that. They didn't sound like what I just had witnessed either. At seven years old, I felt the weight of Jesus' crucifixion in a way I hadn't before. But it would take much longer than that for me to begin to realize the true agony and suffering of the cross. The suffering we read about in Psalm 22. Now, it makes sense that we would focus so intently on the physical pain of Jesus' crucifixion. We're intensely physical beings after all. In some small way, we can imagine what it must feel like to have your body lashed open by Roman whips, or to have railroad spikes driven into your hands and feet, to have thorns pressed into your flesh, to be punched and spat at, or for men to have your beard pulled from your face. And some of us know what it's like to struggle to breathe. And it is asphyxiation, after all, that was the cause of Jesus' death in his crucifixion. Make no mistake, the physical pain Jesus endured is far beyond what most of us have ever or will ever experience. A word had to be invented to describe the pain that one goes through in crucifixion. The word is excruciating. It's an English word that comes from two Latin words ex and crucio, which means out of the cross. Crucifixion means excruciating, unmatched pain. And we can all identify with physical pain, but it's harder and in some cases impossible to identify with the other aspects of the cross of Christ. Aspects we tend to overlook or underestimate by way of comparison. Aspects we simply cannot understand because we're not Jesus. Like Jesus, however, you and I are physical, emotional, and spiritual beings capable of feeling great joy and pain in each of those parts of our being. But unlike Jesus, we are the created, not the creator. Unlike Jesus, we were born spiritually dead in sin and are rebels to God's will. Where Jesus 
is submissive to and an executor of God's will. Having left heaven to be born a man and to be crucified for our sin. And what we read in the gospel accounts of this crucifixion echo much of what we read in Psalm 22. Look at the prophetic fulfillments found in the gospels, hearkening back to Psalm 22. Verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 22 reads, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Jesus experienced emotional abuse through insults, mockery, and personal rejection. And these three verses in Psalm 22 are almost a word-for-word fulfillment of Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44, which I would absolutely encourage you to read today. Then in verses 14 and 15 of this psalm, we read, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Now David wrote this psalm long before crucifixion was a method of execution, and yet these words are incredibly prophetic. Certainly verse 14 has strong parallels to Jesus' crucifixion, but look specifically at verse 15. My mouth is dried up, and you lay me in the dust of death. In John 19, with his mouth and tongue dried up from the agony of the cross, Jesus said, I thirst. Then, two verses later, Jesus' next and final words were, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And into the dust of death, he went. And then finally, in verses 16 through 18, David writes, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now, in all four Gospels, we see the fulfillment of verses 16 and 18 of Psalm 22. Pierced hands and feet from verse 16 is the how of crucifixion. And in each of the Gospels, we learn that the Roman soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothes, just as verse 18 said they would. My friends, it is not hard to see Jesus and his crucifixion in Psalm 22. But this psalm runs deeper than the physical pain Jesus experienced. It goes further than the shame of his nakedness or the emotional heartache of being betrayed, mocked, and scorned. In Psalm 22, we get a glimpse into the spiritual agony of the cross as well. Look at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is perhaps the most unique, strange, and magnificent verse in all of Psalm 22. And there is more mystery and depth in this sentence and the event associated with it than we can understand. And when Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, 
in that ninth hour, we can be assured that those who heard him paid attention. In part because the phrase cried out in a loud voice that we find in the gospel accounts is more accurately translated, screamed. Jesus screamed these words from the cross. Can you picture that? Bystanders would have also paid attention because they knew well where those words were coming from, that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. But they didn't understand what it meant that Jesus himself had used them. Why those words? And why direct them toward God? Especially when he was a victim of the wickedness and cruelty of men, crucified and abandoned. Jesus didn't cry out, my hands, my hands, my feet, my feet, or my friends, my friends. He cried out, my God, my God. On the surface, those words are both troubling and confusing. And perhaps, like those who stood there that first Good Friday, you wonder about these things. Unsure of what those words and his cross truly means. Friends, I believe that with the Spirit's help, we can and must begin to understand them. Because the power of the cross is found in this very moment, in these very words. Brothers and sisters, Jesus cried these words of agony because on the cross, for a certain period of time, Jesus was separated from his Father and experienced what is essentially eternal condemnation in hell. You see, the real horror of hell isn't found in our imaginations or in the ways that we have seen it depicted in art. It's interesting to note that Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And as he described it, it was an eternal punishment, an unquenchable eternal fire, and a blazing furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said that hell wasn't made for man, but was prepared for the devil and his angels, those who rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. Friends, one's soul being separated from God is what makes hell, hell. As Charles Spurgeon said, hell itself has for its fiercest flame the separation of the soul from God. For you and I, being separated from God in this life for even a moment is impossible. It is impossible. Because even the most miserable person enjoys the blessings and common grace of God. Even if they are unable to see them as blessings or recognize God as the giver. Have you ever thought of that? That the air we breathe, the food we eat, the things we drink, the love of family and friends, the beauty of the world, and all that surrounds us, and any other good and perfect gift is evidence of God and his presence among us. 
Paul, in the book of Romans, tells us that God, who is invisible, has made himself known through that which is visible. So while we all have moments where we wonder if God is near or has abandoned us, we can lift up our heads because he is near and he has not left us alone. Every new day is a reminder of a long-standing truth made manifest in Christ. God is with us. Emmanuel. So there is no one who knows what it truly means to be abandoned by God, except Jesus. Except Jesus. See, on the cross, for the first and only time in all of eternity, Jesus was forsaken by his Father. And the eternal fellowship they shared was broken. And that, that is the true suffering of the cross and the motivation behind Jesus' scream in verse 1. Look again at how that verse begins. My God, my God. Do you know that this is the only time in Scripture where we see Jesus not address God as Father? Instead, he cried out to God. More specifically, my God. That though he was forsaken, Jesus remained dependent upon and had a relationship with God. And then verse 1 continues, Why have you forsaken me? So what does it mean that Jesus was forsaken? As one commentator put it, to be forsaken by God means to have the light of God's countenance and the sense of his presence eclipsed. To have the light of God's countenance and the sense of his presence eclipsed. In the cross, God the Father had turned his face away from Jesus because, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the holiest of all transactions, in the greatest of all exchanges, our sin was transferred on to Jesus in full, and his righteousness was transferred to us. Now, verse 19 of that same chapter says that at the cross, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. See, in Jesus, God was punishing all the sins of everyone who would believe in him. Now understand that Christ did not and could not cease to exist as God, as a member of the Trinity or as God's son, any more than a disobedient child stops being a son to his earthly father. But the eternal, intimate, and loving fellowship between Jesus and God the Father did cease for a time. It had been broken. And in his holiness... The Father turned away from the Son, and Jesus knew it, and he cried out. He screamed in agony. As the hymn writer wrote, 
Tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Friends, it is in the cross of Jesus Christ where we see the matchless justice and holiness of God. You see, God would not be holy and he would not be just if he ignored sin and left it unpunished. And according to Habakkuk chapter 1, God's eyes are too pure to approve evil and he cannot look on wickedness with favor. If we look at the crucifixion accounts of Matthew 27 and Mark 15, we see that prior to Jesus' death, a darkness came over all the land. Throughout scripture, we see darkness in both supernatural and metaphorical ways, always representative of the day of evil, the absence of God, or the judgment of God. And in Matthew and Mark's accounts of Jesus' death, we see darkness fall across the land. Because on Good Friday, evil had its day in that the Son of God was killed. And God's judgment fell heavy upon the shoulders of his beloved Son. Because God is just and he is holy. And he poured out his wrath upon and turned away from all that stood in direct opposition to who he is all of which was embodied in his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. But friends, God is also loving and merciful. And we see his love and mercy on full display in the cross as well. That those who had sinned, and that's all of us, would not be held accountable if they would believe in the sinless one who took their place. If they would have faith in the one who gave his life as a ransom for many and became a curse for us. It is within this incredible truth and deep mystery that we find our answer to the second question we need to ask when gazing at the cross. So what? See, history tells us that a man named Jesus of Nazareth died 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross by the order of of Pontius Pilate. But so what? What does that have to do with you and me? Well, it begins here. We have all sinned, and the punishment for that sin is death and eternal separation from God. But Jesus took upon himself every sin and its punishment for all who would believe in him. And he rose again from the dead three days later to prove his victory over death and to offer us eternal life, forgiven by God and alive to God forever. But apart from Jesus' death and resurrection, we are without that hope. I mean, do you really believe 
that Jesus would have endured the physical, emotional, and spiritual agony of the cross and cry out, it is finished. If there was more to do, if doing more good stuff than bad stuff would make us right in God's eyes, of course not. The cross is the strongest evidence given that we cannot save ourselves. And in all its brutality and horror, the cross cries out, your sin is this bad. But God's love is this great. In Genesis 22, we see the love of a father, Abraham, for his promised son, Isaac. And one day God came to Abraham and told him to take Isaac to a mountain and sacrifice him. So Abraham got up, cut the wood for the offering, and along with his son Isaac, went to the place God told him. And with the wood for the offering on his back, unaware that he was to be sacrificed, Isaac asked, Here is the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the offering? And Abraham replied, God will provide for himself the lamb, my son. And on that day, as Abraham was about to kill Isaac, God stopped him and showed him instead a ram caught in the bushes. And it was that ram that God provided who was sacrificed instead. Friends, God provided his own lamb on Good Friday, his only begotten son as a perfect sacrifice so that Isaac and you and I would go free. On Good Friday 2,000 years ago, Jesus became sin so that we would be made righteous. Jesus was plunged into the dust of death so that we would rise into the newness of life. Jesus became a curse so that we would only know God's blessings. Jesus experienced hell so that we would enjoy heaven. And Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would always know his presence. So, do you believe it? And if so, what will you do about it? In other words, so what and now what? If you don't believe are you willing to have your affections and allegiances changed? And if you do believe, what affections and allegiances are you still holding on to? If you don't believe, are you willing to submit to his lordship? And if you do believe, where are you finding yourself acting as God instead of him? If you don't believe, will you turn from your sin and offer yourself to him in worship? And if you do believe, do you want to love and obey Jesus? To stop living for the things he died for and instead live for him? Believer and non-believer, Jew and Gentile, do you want to spend your life on earth and all of eternity with Jesus? Because that's what he purchased with his blood. A forgiveness and righteousness we could not earn and can never lose. 
the making of one new humanity in place of the two, and the unending presence and power of God given to us by his spirit. It is those things, my friends, and many more, that make this Friday so very good. So on this Good Friday, and on all other days that God gives us, let us echo the strains of Psalm 22, verse 31. We will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Let's pray. Faithful God, our Savior, from a wandering nomad, you created your family. For a burdened people, you raised up a leader. For a confused nation, you chose a king. And for a rebellious crowd, you sent your prophets. In these last days, you have sent us your son, revealing your will, bringing your kingdom, redeeming your people for yourself. Holy God, you have opened our ears to hear your word, and our lips to proclaim your truth. Open our eyes this day to see in the cross the revelation of your love. Continue to lead us in your way through Jesus Christ, the crucified, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, be honor and praise, now and forever. Amen. Blessings to you on this Good Friday, and be encouraged. Sunday is coming.